Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and it's my joy to create this space where we can talk to artists, theologians, scholars about theology and our worship. Today we have Kenny and Claire Hilliard. They are Nashville artists. Um, their newest projects, an EP called Are You Weary that came out in September 2021. And so excited we recorded this podcast live at a Dort University worship arts class. So it was great to have questions from students too. So when I first um, yeah, knew I was going to get to do this for a class, interview these guys, I looked at their Instagram and saw a post about you guys, Kenny and Claire, <laughs> joining this playlist on Spotify that's called Worship Songs That Don't Give Me Cavities or Heresy. So Worship Songs, this is a playlist that you've made at Santa McCracken, Andrew, Andrew Peters. Oh, you didn't make it. We did no, not we make it. Oh. No. no, we're not the curators. Oh, but you would like to make it, possibly. No. I mean, no. I think there's some things we, we, agree, we agree about with it. You agree about it. Well, We, we yeah, can, we can sure. talk about the subject, because I think... It has some of your friends, people you've yeah, yeah worked with at conferences sure. yeah. and and things yeah. like that. Why yeah. why yeah why might you post that? Why does this group you think even exist? That, that I think that's the the crux of the question is why does this exist, right? Um, the reason I posted it because the name is hilarious. Yeah. I mean cavities. Worship songs that give you cavities. I mean, and then they can maybe I don't know, um, but I think the reason it exists is um, there are some people who are questioning. The, um, I guess, the overarching control that uh, certain worship groups have over worship music and how we do it and how they've influenced the world of worship music. Uh, those would be Hillsong, Bethel, and Elevation. Um, and so there are some folks who um, have started looking at the theology behind the music and, and, questioning whether it's necessarily helpful. Mm. Um, you know, seeing perhaps some of the songs are very me-oriented. Um, some of that actually has to do with the theology of worship that comes out of there. We can talk a little bit about that, uh, focused in on some of the Pentecostal stuff. Um, but I will say this, um, because we're in an academic sphere, um, there is a fallacy that is called the genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy would be what we would, might would call guilt by association. That probably is the easiest way to say it. So if somebody makes something, it's automatically wrong because they made it, not because of what it says or what it is. Um, that is an, that's a fallacy. That's wrong. Um, so some of these people who are, who are dealing with the theology, the theological problems that we face with these groups, are automatically shutting them down because it's from these groups. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that uh, these groups have made some songs that do say true things that are good. Um, I will say as a pastor for my church, as a worship leader, one of the concerns I have about using their songs in worship, and this has to do with the convictions of whatever church you serve, okay? So this is not like, here's the law. Um, but our conviction is that when we use songs from these groups that we as a church in our tradition theologically disagree with, we're actually supporting the ministries of those churches and by de facto their theology. And so we as a church don't necessarily use them, not because all their songs are awful and they're going to give me cavities and heresy, uh, but because we may not want to be financially supporting ministries that we disagree with theologically. How, how far can you take that 
ethic, I guess. Do you take that to it's, it's every hard. every hymn writer? No, you can't. Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah. You know, so I yeah. will. I won't so, I mean, ruin some I, of the I great think, hymns. No, but no, but I mean, like some Isaac of those Watts, great hymn right? writers moved to Jerusalem and yeah. called themselves the Messiah. And well, most you, of our you have, Reformed churches sing those still. Right. Like, how, uh, so how far do you take that? that I, I think ethic? the the issue. I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I could be wrong. Like, I am totally okay with you being like, you're a loser, don't say that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, you have guys like Isaac Watts who we believe denied the Trinity, you know, yet we sing his hymns because they're phenomenal. Um, I think the issue at hand is that these ministries are actually still active. So when we sing Watts' hymns, we're singing them from the tradition of our congregation, and we know them. And we think through them in that way. Because what they say is true, no matter perhaps what Watts might have meant by the words he used. And again, that is the genetic fallacy, you know, uh, what is he saying? Is it true? Uh, The problem is that these ministries are actually still active and they're still influencing the world of worship. And so that, I think, is the, the, the distinction. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Now, I will say this, though, um, the guilt by association thing, um, some folks have started going, you know what, um, this artist played one song with somebody who wrote with these people, so clearly we can't trust their music anymore. Those kind of things, I think, actually have a, they don't understand the relationships that go on in the music world between artists. Uh, we often will interact with and associate with people that we may not agree with 100% theologically. Um, one, because that's just how we care and love for people. Um, we're not just going to <laughs> hang out with people that we agree with 100%. Um, so, so I just, I feel like that kind of guilt by association is unhealthy um, in that way. Claire, like just thinking about you guys as, as, a, as a couple or even your own story, like what led to you writing songs, not even just for kind of the cafe scene or like just to share your own heart, but also really writing songs for the church, like what led to, to kind of part, this being a part of your vocation, part of your calling? The short of it is, is that we've been writing for a long time. I've writing is an overflow of what I do um, as a person. And even when I wasn't intentionally pursuing songwriting, it, that was just a part of what I did. Um, but then in 2017, uh, there was Um, a number of circumstances that led to intentionally pursuing songwriting. And so at that point, in trying to work on the craft, I just wrote. I wrote whatever would come out. It might be a song for a coffee shop. It might be a song just for myself or my kids or whatever. But in writing, we had created quite quite a library of songs. And when it came time to make an album we realized that the songs that we had written that were rewritten hymns, and I'd written quite a number of of those, uh, we felt like that those rewritten hymns might serve the church best out of what we had written. I believe everybody has different gifts and different ways of expressing those gifts, and I think it's important to go with... how, how the Lord made you to write. And we found that in, in writing a lot of things that our niche, so to speak, are where we really thrived in writing was either rewriting hymns or writing songs for the church. Um, those are subjects that we're passionate about and 
love to write about. So that's yeah. came that's out of just your love for that and your love to support yeah. the yeah. church. I, mean, I think too. Um, in 2014, I started serving as a senior pastor for the first time, and um, we also had to do the worship. We had to do both, country church. And um, just thinking through the songs um, and how they help people, and, and then <clears throat> just the fact that, I mean, we loved the church dearly beforehand, but as I was serving as a pastor, and then um, in that time, I, was, I had a brain tumor. I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. I have a genetic disorder called... Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and uh, just the care and love of the people, you know, grew our heart, and, and, it's, and it just, in that, it's like, how can we serve them? What, what, what can we do to, to help and encourage in those ways, I think, mm-hmm. we're part of that. It's so beautiful. I, yeah, I appreciate just, yeah, that, that heart to serve the church, but also your, your desire to, like, be discerning around songs and around not just... The lyrics of the songs, or the, does the does the music fit? But also, where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. Do, is there resonance there? Is there, uh, yeah, some level of agreement? Or yeah. uh, I, I'm I'm curious. You know, we're in a class, 8 a.m. Dort University, <laughs> Foundations of Worship. Like, yeah. what are key elements of your? Maybe not worship's maybe too broad for a yeah. for an hour discussion. <laughs> but a, around song, like in congregational song, what do you think are a few key elements or key foundations for for congregational song? The first one that comes to mind that I think is very important is singability. Mm. Um, wanting the song to be able to actually be sung by the yeah. congregation together. And with that, it kind of goes in hand in hand with memorability. These are songs that the congregation is going to take home into their week, and it might stick actually most likely will stick more in their minds than the sermon. So wanting these songs to be presented in a way that's helpful for the congregants to rehearse them in their daily lives. Um, and I believe that influences our yeah. daily life quite a bit. That's so good. What about, yeah, on the theology yeah. side, what are key theological elements of, sure. of congregational singing? So, or congregational so I was going to say, like, one thing that we need to think about, and you'll probably touch on this as you look at historical hymn writing, whatnot, is that the goal of hymns and and worship music is actually to teach theology to the people. And whether you're cognizant of it or not, that's what you're doing. And uh, that's one of the reasons, like, some of these groups that are so influential are so influential, uh, because the songs have a lot of meaning to the heart. Uh, Music itself is emotional. It, 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 there's a <laughs> we have laughing children um, <laughs> who are moaning in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a reason uh, that that certain songs mean so much to us. This is how God has designed it, and it's one of the reasons that we're commanded to sing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, theologically, because I am now teaching through music, I want to be very cognizant that what I'm saying to my people, just like if I were writing a sermon, is biblical. Is it's it's there. Um, and for me, like, and uh, when I go to, um, to, to lecture on worship theology, one of the places I like to start is Isaiah 6. Isaiah enters the throne room and sees the Lord, and he's overwhelmed with who he is and his glory. And I want that to be the focus of my congregation, too. Um, a lot of our modern stuff is targeted towards me and how I feel. And a lot of times, 
the one we've come to worship can become a side item. And we, we just don't want that. Um, now, that's not to say that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah doesn't look at himself. But he looks at himself after he's seen who God is. And he says, woe is me. And he's redeemed. And there's rejoicing in the redemption. And so I always like to think of worship as seeing God for who he is and what he has done, and then myself in light of that. And I, I know um, we do want Godward focus in our worship, um, but we also be, need to be cognizant that in the Psalms, there are Psalms about the psalmist. They just have a tendency to go from there to God. Like, so we want to make sure that we're actually pointing in that direction. And, and again, um, orthodoxy means say the same thing. So we're saying the same thing as scripture. doesn't mean that we can't be artistic with it, but it does mean that we probably need to be within those guardrails. Yeah, as you, as you share that, I'm reminded of Lester Roos, a professor at Duke. We'll, yeah, in this class, talk more about him. I've had him on this podcast too, but he did, probably 10 years ago, looked at a lot of the top 25 um, worship songs that come from a CCLI list, mm -hmm. kind of from the 90s, early 2000s, and found a lot of things. And again, these are the most common, most sung songs. So mm -hmm. churches were, of course, singing other things, sure, sure, lots of other sure, things. But sure. when they all come together to <laughs> pay, pay songwriters and, and publishers, these were the ones that were the top. And what, what he found is like, yeah, the the kind of personal pronouns were there, which is also in the Psalms. Most, right. most often words in the Psalms are I, yeah. us, we, yeah. kind of those yeah. personal pronouns. But what he found is that, yeah, the, the, those top 25 songs, God rarely got the verbs. Mm -hmm. So it was a picture of, yeah, holy, 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 um, you know, a picture of God's beauty or radiance. But it was us, so it was here I am to worship, or I will give you all my worship. And again, there's resonance with the psalm sure, in sure. that. But yeah. of those songs, God was pictured as a very distant, inactive God, which yeah, yeah reflects more of a kind of Greco-Roman pagan worldview than actually a yeah. biblical worldview that God's well, here and by. And so, actually, some spirit. of that um, is uh, if you look at at what I'm just going to say, Bethel and Hillsong have written about their worship philosophy. It's based on a verse taken out of Psalm 22, 3, that God is enshrined or enthroned on his people's praises. But they, they take that verse and they pull it out, and they, the, the assumption is that God doesn't show up to worship unless we are singing in a certain way. And then there becomes this context of moving where we start the emotions and we bring the emotions up and we get to one point, that's when God really shows up and now we can hear the word. And that is, that is just part of their theological ordering of worship. What's happened is, again, because worship is teaching theology, um, this has worked its way into uh, theological circles well beyond uh, theirs, which would fit their context because it is part of one of the hallmarks of how they do worship. And so this is part of, of, of that. Like you say, well, there's a lot of me. Yes, because he's enthroned in our worship. We need to talk about our worship. We need to invite him to come in. And, and you're right. Like when I did um, my academic work on ancient Near Eastern texts, the way um, the, the, the ancient Near Eastern world would welcome their God in is by enticing him with good things to get him to come in and get him to, you know, you would, <laughs> if your God left the temple, you could pour a, a trail of beer 
and eventually your God would show back up. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and that's a, that's a funny extreme example. Uh, but in a lot of ways, that is how we, influenced by the broader Christian worship culture, can think of worshiping God, that we need to come in, and when we've reached a certain emotional point, then the Holy Spirit has really come. Uh, but in Scripture, we find that He's there where truth is. And so we want to, to, to encourage our people to, to be thinking on the truth and, and dwelling on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think of Paul, you quoted that earlier. Like, in, in, that, in that theological context, singing brings God's presence. But Paul says, actually, be filled with the Spirit. And then <laughs> yeah. sing. Like, yeah. there yeah. is a, yeah. a, a mm-hmm. shift. And of course, in the Psalms, there is the idea of enthronement psalms. And there is sure. some resonance yes. within those communities, oh, yeah. too. That, oh, yeah. like... This was a thought of we're gonna enthrone Yahweh. Yeah. As yeah, and we I come think it's to, the picture of him Zion. seated on his throne, yeah. surrounded by the praise of his yeah. people, yeah. not his people being the throne which yeah. he's sitting on. You know, yeah. and so there's just a, a, a funny yeah. way of looking at the way that that goes about. And I think it, it becomes most poignant I've seen in like advertisements like this this album will bring you directly <laughs> into God's presence or and I mean yeah. that's Hopefully, prayerfully, but even that, it's 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 a support, it's a, an aid, and hopefully you're yeah. already recognizing or, or the, God's or the, presence is in you, around you. When you're done you. with worship, like, how did it make you feel? Yeah. Like, how did, you know, that, that question, because you're, you're subconsciously, maybe not consciously, yeah. gauging the quality of worship on your emotional response. Yeah. And I, I, I know that's one after service. How did you like service? Or how was chapel? Or yeah. how yeah. was praise and worship here at Dort? And I, I love the question. Like John Whitfleet, others like how were you formed by the triune God of grace? There you go. Yeah. Like, and yeah. that's again, that is a totally different answer. Actually, it, is. Yeah. it could have been horrible. The songs could have not resonated with you emotionally, but cognitively, you may have begin to think something different with God. You got you hit have, in the face with yeah. something that's true. Yeah. And you're like, oh. You, you may know? be like Isaiah, yeah. like, woe is me, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. shattered. Yeah. Why, why do you think it's important? Again, I think you've, you've been hitting on this around song's role to teach. Um, but why, why else is it important for us to really be discerning mm-hmm. about the songs we sing, particularly the songs we put in the words of God's people, whether we're a pastor, mm-hmm. you know, thinking, oh, I'd love this song as a song of response, or we're worship mm-hmm. planners. Yeah. Why, why is that discernment element, yeah, so key? The first thing that comes to mind is man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And God's word is true. God's word is trustworthy. And God's word is what we need to be fed with. And so in our songs and in our teaching, it's very important that we're fed with what's true. Um, With anything, you have to use discernment. Like, not all hymns, just because they're a hymn, are necessarily 100% theologically correct. That's that's not not the point. Um, We do need to use discernment, um, but we do need to make sure that what we sing about isn't is indeed true and not fluff. (laughs) Um, My, My people don't need to sing my opinions. They. You know, uh, one of the beautiful things about the guardrail of Scripture, yeah, if, if we're being careful, is um, I'm not tying people to my opinion. Because um, my opinion can be very wrong, um, and I can mean it with all my heart. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, um, you know, what tradition you guys come from, uh, but we, in our tradition, hold to what's called the regulative principle of worship. Um, you know, if God hasn't commanded it, then we probably shouldn't do it. Um, 
some take that to extremes. We're we're not. No, you have microphones in we, your we have, church. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, we're we're we're, <laughs> we're we're seeing it as a basic principle. Um, but but the fact of the matter is that protects my congregation from me, um, because I'm not just doing what feels right. Um, so they're not beholden or believing that something's biblical when it's just my opinion. It also protects me from my people. <laughs> You know, when somebody's like, hey, I really think that this is a great idea, and I can go, well, you know, we probably shouldn't do that because of this, you know. And so I, I think those principles are helpful, um, but uh, y- you, I think one thing you have to realize as a, as a worship leader for a church is once you select a song and it's in rotation and your people latch onto it, it can become part of their identity. Like, they, they really are beholden to that. And so even, like, good songs, you have to ask, you know, do, will my people be singing this, like, 15, 20 years from now? Like, how, how, you know, if it's going to have that kind of sticking power, I should probably be cautious about what it is. Graham, Graham Kendrick, some of you know him, wrote songs in, in the States, Shine, Jesus, Shine is the uh-huh. one that yeah. he's known, but yeah. is, he talks about his craft like as a songwriter for the church, thinking what are, what are the songs that are going to be remembered in kind of the care facility, the nursing home, the, yeah. or what are the songs that are going to be sung at, at funerals, and kind of puts that benchmark yeah. as he's trying to write for the church, and I think that's... Yeah, not what's going to be great for this album, but what mm-hmm. will help carry, yeah, nurture well, and you can think even, faith for, for the long run, for the le- kind of legacy picture. So, like, even on the songwriting side, like, one of the reasons that we, we write the way that we do, one is because it's, who, it's just what we've grown up with, but the other part is we don't want it to be um, so, how to put it, uh, so we want it to have staying power. Um, there are a number of songs that have come out from, I mean, I think mem- remembering the worship movement we grew up with, you know, 97 on to now that came out and were powerful for all of like a month or, you know, a couple months, maybe a year. And then it's like, wow, that sounds really old, like, and not in a good way. And so the goal is to, to write things, whether we have or not, that's another story. <laughs> but the goal is to write things that, um, that just aren't so in the in the, in in line with like contemporary feelings of the moment, but are but are, are able to stick, Lord willing. Yeah, a lot of our questions from from these students are around songwriting and the yeah. process, and so yeah, I want to shift gears a little more. I mean, we're kind of there. Like, is is there a different approach for writing congregational song or hymnody? Versus more, even if they're in the church, like testimony, anthem, presentational mm-hmm. songs, yeah. um, and maybe even add in that other, like songs that are for the cafe or the club yeah. or yeah. the radio. Like, is yeah. there, do you guys particularly take a different perspective as you, if, if you're thinking, I want, I want these, these guys in worship next week yeah. to sing this yeah. versus I'm going to present this maybe in a worship service for them, for people to hear. Kind of as a reflective. And then also, yeah, yeah. more reflective, mm-hmm. like I, Choir anthems in, in some traditions are massive liturgical traditions oh, yeah, yeah. and Baptist traditions, oh, yeah, yeah. like yeah. an anthem before the the sing, you know the preaching of the word, or or I guess that other sh- shift, like you know some music may fit for a, a cafe or a club. Mm-hmm. It's not 
it's not vertical worship or even yeah. horizontal. It is expression of of faith or, or yearnings or loves. Like, yeah, are you writing as you think about some of those different categories or or kind of performative contexts? Like, do you do you write in a different way for those? Or do yes. you just write? <laughs> well, yeah. So in, in terms of congregational worship, the things that go through my mind are uh, making sure, as I mentioned earlier, is this song singable? Is it in a key that others can sing along with? Um, is, is, does it go too high or drop too low in certain parts of the song? Um, because that might be hard <laughs> for whoever may be in the congregation. So trying to keep something within a range that's singable. And also, um, everything, I'm a big fan of songs that just have good hooks and easy memorability because that sticks in the mind longer. Um, And so definitely with congregational music, you want something that's easy to pick up easy to remember. Often being cognizant of the language used in the writing. Um, there are, I think that there are places, and we have, I have one song in particular I can think of that has language that's me, a personal, but realizing in light of the congregation, we're singing these songs together. So it's really helpful to think of we language coming together to worship the Lord. Um, whereas from a singer-songwriter point of view, it's going to be more often than not more I language in a personal emotional response. And that's not to say that there's not a place for those things. For instance, the song that comes to mind is I will sing of your love. Sure. I will, um, I, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. I will sing, I will sing. And together we're singing this and proclaiming this, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. But for the, for the most part, thinking in terms of singing these songs together with other people and what truths can we proclaim together. It's really good. I think one of the difficulties um, as we've written in different groups is the question of what is singable for a congregation and what isn't. Um, I think that that's in some ways a moving target. Um, I, I think that Honestly, some groups, some of the groups we've mentioned, Hillsong, Bethel, whatnot, have shown that congregations can actually sing quite broadly, you know, complex things. Um, so we're not saying like everything has to be like, you know, monk chant, monotone yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But um, but just being, you know, cognizant of the fact that, uh, um, you know, who your musicians are, uh, who your congregation are. Um, when I served in rural North Carolina. There are some songs, I mean, most of the musicians we had to work with were just hobbyists who play every now and then. And so... Very good hobbyists, if they, you're no, listening. No, no, they were good. <laughs> they were good. They love you very much. But, I, but I'm not going to throw, like, a heavy technical piece on them and expect somebody who's working, you know, more than full time to, on the side, pick it up and play it on a Sunday morning. Um, and so just keeping in mind... And, and that's the pastoral role when it comes to being a worship minister, worship pastor, is... You know, thinking of what your people can do, maybe stretching them a little bit, but but trying to to over the long term train them, um, I think is very helpful. As far as songwriting goes, um, a lot of times we just start with an idea, we work with the song, and then we ask, "Is this going to be congregational or is this not?" Um, I think that if you start out with 
I'm just going to write congregational or I'm just not going to write congregational, then you already start putting yourself in a box that may not be helpful with the creative process. Mm -hmm. um, so we write a song and we go, eh, maybe, maybe not, you know. What role um, does commu like community play in your writing? Like how, how do you as writers engage in community and also how does that community impact your writing process? Yeah. One way that I think of it is that in the church at large, God gives everybody different gifts, and these gifts all come together beautifully to bring him glory and honor. And even so, you can almost see that come down to the songwriters. There might be different songwriters, but different songwriters have different strengths and weaknesses and different gifts. And in appreciating those gifts of others and coming together, you're going to end up making something more beautiful in the end. And so um, we do write on our own. We enjoy that. I think that's healthy to try to exercise that skill and that, that craft. But there's also a joy in coming together with others and seeing what they have to bring to the table, what perspective they have, um, what sound they have, um, how they might look at something lyrically different than I would or melodically different than I would. And often um, you'll find that songwriters tend tend to be more strong in melody or to be stronger in lyrics. Um, between the two of us, I tend to be more strong in melody. Kenny tends to be more strong in lyrics, I would argue. <laughs> um, sometimes he argues the opposite. But, but I struggle. So just even getting further down, I struggle with a blank page. Like... My mind, I mean, even as you ask questions, my mind goes, boom, everywhere. And so uh, it generally helps me if she starts with an idea and I can go, hey, I can add lyrics to that. But that's um, not to say if I come up with a melody and it's really cheesy, he helps me out and changes that. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. write together a lot, but we've also been involved with the Getty Hymn Writing Collective Um this is a plug because we love love the Getty Hymn Writing Collective. Um, we don't get paid for this plug. We don't. Um, but it's open um, to those through the thing. I think it's yeah. singlobal.net. But anyways, if you Google Getty Hymn Writing Collective, you can find more about it and be involved. But it is um, – they've created a community of – songwriters who are writing intentionally for the church and we've met a lot of co-writers through the hymn writing collective and those to collaborate with and then we've also just been encouraged from the seminars that they've given and the feedback on songs that we've been given i think that one of the best ways to grow as a songwriter is one study songs uh -huh. two get feedback on your songs <laughs> and uh, that that's so helpful and the hymn writing right collective is right, right with, right other, with people. other people. Right with other people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but we've yeah, been yeah. involved with, with different songwriting groups, and that's been helpful to. That's been helpful to meet other people and to grow in our craft as well. Talk. Can you a lot of yeah a lot of the questions we we wanted to ask were around the songwriting process. Maybe the easiest way or the coolest way might be take one of your songs and just maybe. Share, like, from initial idea or thought to, like, okay, it's done. We've got it on an album or we're using it in church or is, yeah, is, is yeah, one of your songs or, or even a retuned re kind of hymn that you've brought in, like, that you could take us from, like, original idea to then when it's kind of done? What did that, yeah, is there a song that comes to mind? Like an, an easy one would be Approach My Soul, probably. 
So approach my soul. Um, yeah, well, how did that one, come about? So we had had a number of Sundays where, like, just the restful thing was to open a little Scottish hymnal we have from 1890. Um, just lyrics, uh, no melody in there, so it's helpful for that kind of thing. And uh, I had been listening to music, and I had heard Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat, Indelible Graces version. Nothing wrong with that one at all. But I found the melody was hard for us to come together on, and I knew it would be hard for my congregation to come together on it. Um, and they made some lyrical decisions that I wasn't really the most happy with. Um, so we got to looking for it and found the original words, and I was trying to think of how to put it together, because it's five really short verses, and they're really short. Um, you could melodically st stretch that out maybe, <laughs> make it a slower song or whatnot. But what we found was helpful was that the fifth verse was actually very, very potent. Like it's just, and that's something that, um, it's Newton, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's something that Newton does. He's, the fifth one is just always like the smack in the face. Like you're going to think about this for like three weeks now. <laughs> and so uh, what we ended up doing was realizing that we could lengthen it if we took verse one and two and put them together and three and four and put them together and turn them into verses. And so that's what we did. We, and then we came up with a melody that would fit that. And verse five was the chorus. Mm. Thank you. Verse five became the chorus. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, did Evan make changes in, in production on that one? Um, he added an interlude. Yeah, so we added mm -hmm. an interlude yeah, to so it. So kind of bringing that community mm -hmm. piece, other, yeah. other writers, yeah. people you're working and with. And then uh, what was cool, though, is like the way we perform it on stage is just us with a guitar. It's very simple. Uh, but in the studio with Evan and then working with other musicians to help build it, it became something totally different, and we love it. Like it's just got all these things going on in the background and um, really fun. And I, I think that's the, the one of the beautiful things about the recording process um, if you can get the community involved, is the beauty that comes out of it. Like the songs that we wrote and brought to the studio are still the same songs, but they sound totally different on the album than they do, you know, when we just play them on our own. And that's, yeah, one of the beauties yeah. to that previous conversation on community is exactly. Yeah, they're each bringing a little nuance or a fresh. And one of the cool things about the producer we the had is, is he believed in the project. Um, he's a, a, a dear brother and wanted to get musicians who also were believers and would believe in the project involved. And the cool thing is, I feel like the music is just better when the people believe in what they're doing. And so it was just really cool to just to see, you know, the bass player, the drummer, like just jump in and be like, yes, let's, let's do this. I mean, for that song and others, you're drawing from kind of rich musical traditions, mm -hmm. rich theological traditions. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're creating new songs, maybe brand new songs, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you express value and tradition while also being new and creative? Like That's tough, yeah. right? It's tough. Is that what you said? Yeah. It can be, yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that it's important to remember those who have gone before because they can speak into our culture today mm -hmm. in ways that we can't because we Part are in a different yeah. culture in a different time. Mm -hmm. So I think keeping keeping that in mind is important. Um and perhaps it doesn't always necessarily mean mean rewriting a hymn. I, I like to do that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. I was thinking of your Psalm 23 song. Um, 
And then as far as writing music, I find it encouraging when I hear music that's deeply steeped in Scripture, whatever style that may be, just because it helps me remember what God says. And so I tend to write in that vein um, as well. I think one thing that helps ground my thinking is being um, cognizant of church history, being cognizant of um, just our theology and whatnot. So um, I think one important thing for songwriters is to be widely read. Um, Know where you are, where you're going, what you think. Um, Because those things are actually going to help influence what you say. you're, you're, you're not a tabula rasa, you're not a blank slate. And, and the fact of the matter is, if you're not thinking carefully about what you're bringing in, then you're just going to be bringing in um, everything. And uh, that will influence your writing. And, and everything you read, everything you think about, all of these things are going to be influencing how you write and what you do. And so I think being diligent to, not like every hour of every day, but, but trying to make sure that um, you're, you're, you're reading, yes, read scripture daily. That's, you know, practice the spiritual disciplines. Um, but also outside of those that you're, you're always have something that you're reading and you're thinking about just to kind of keep your mind going um, that does tie you back to your faith tradition, um, church history, those kind of things. I, I've, I've just always been enamored by it, so I, I stay in it, but I found it very helpful. Mm. To talk, yeah, kind of along the same side of drawing in tradition. Also, talk. How do you, how do you speak to or bridge maybe two different camps? We talked about the charismatic mm-hmm. camp. Yeah, Let's yeah. set that to the side for a minute. Yeah. But maybe, the the other evangelical stream of like of updating songs to be novel. I think it's a passion for hospitality. So like to do mm-hmm. new and fresh, not not to get God's attention to come right, down right, and hang right, out right, with us right, and worship, right. yeah. but actually to minister to others. There's a missional mm-hmm. component to that. Yeah, There's yeah. a hospitality that particularly stuff out of California in the mm-hmm. late 70s was like, yeah, to share the gospel with a whole new generation. Mm-hmm. And then the maybe the traditionalists. Like, uh-huh. So one is, you know, this, this novel group or this fresh new group is about like, let's update the language because yeah. people don't know what a bulwark is anymore. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, yeah, I feel you guys are at a great space where in some ways you're, you're kind of creating a bridge between those. How do, you, how do yeah. you bridge, like, the, the fresh, the new, the creative, but also respect, honor those who are traditionalists? Yeah. Um, Man, uh, is that what we're doing? That wasn't my I'm question. That was one of these <laughs> guys. Um, no, uh, um, I think that uh, I had a thought and it disappeared. Well, I'll, I'll catch you. I have, I have thoughts. <laughs> you go ahead. Um, I think that on one way, it definitely it's, an, it's a way of, of hospitality to update some language so that people can better understand mm-hmm. what, what it is that they're singing. At the same time, I think there is that fine, fine line of preserving the beauty of the language um, and maybe encouraging others to think a little bit harder about what they're saying, mm-hmm. um, to explain words like Ebenezer or perhaps even Bulwark yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. before we sing it because we don't. It makes me think of Bullwinkle. Anyways, um, <laughs> Bullwinkle. 
<laughs> See, even even someone that's called so, to this. So, no, I'm just kidding. No, so, but I think that there is a beauty in preserving what has gone before, but then still, you can. I feel like you can do you can do both. Updating the language. There's some songs that we sing that still have thy and thou in them. Not because we didn't want to update it, but because we we wanted to preserve the beauty of that language. But then with Are You Weary, um, the song was originally Art Thou Weary, Art Thou Languid. And we felt like in for Nobody in our talks context that way yeah, for today's yeah. time, if I asked you, Art Thou Weary, Art Thou Languid, that might feel a little awkward. It, uh, I, I art. My. I, it's, it's 8 a.m. <laughs> well, yeah. So we, up, we updated and that in language. In that song, though, they had the word Gurdon. Which is like, what is a girdon? What is a girdon? Yeah, it, it, it means a gift. Um, you know, I, I thought girdon the loins or something. I don't know, you know? But it's, 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 uh, it's a gift. Um, I think that one way we try to deal with this is um, a, lot of, a lot of the reason that some of these old hymns that we're rewriting aren't used um, can be tied to the melody. And um, that's not because they were given bad melodies, but a melody... Um, it, it portrays meaning. And as societies change, the, what a melody itself portrays can also change. And so what probably back when Art Thou Weary, Art Thou Languid was written portrayed the emotion of the song, in our society it just doesn't do that. And so in some ways, um, even as we try to update language, we have to update the melody to portray what we're saying. And now, now our goal is um, <clears throat> when we're writing a song and we have the lyrics is not just to throw a melody on there that's catchy, but does the melody follow the meaning? We want those to go together. And part of the reason for that is because, as I said earlier, music is inherently emotional. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about people saying using music to control the emotions, and there is some of that. But the fact of the matter is that music itself, uh, by design, is emotional. And we, so, by design, are it, emotional. Well, yeah. we're, we're emotional thinking beings. God, so we need words. And God, beings. at least, as displayed in Scripture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and so because this is the case, we really want the melody to portray the emotion that we're trying to get across with the lyrics as well. So when they fit together and they make sense to our contemporary culture, but they're still holding on to the things of the past, I think that's helpful. Uh, and I think even songs outside of rewritten hymns, like songs that we're writing based on scripture, um, are still going to do that because the scriptures themselves then are the tradition that we're hanging on to while we're still trying to shepherd uh, people into thinking certain ways. And I think that's, that's I just keep adding things, but <laughs> we need to realize Songwriting is service. Um, when we write music, we're trying to serve somebody. Um, and, and it's funny, but like the reason things like, uh, you know, people like Beyonce or whatever are, are famous is because they're actually serving people by their music. Um, they're, they're hitting emotionally the needs of the people. And uh, we need to keep that in mind when we're writing our songs. You know, it's not just here's some great lyrics, here's a catchy melody, but how can I serve people with this? Um, I think that's, that's a critical thing. Um, and, and you'll find that people who serve, who are self-serving, probably aren't going to write the best music because the goal is to serve others. Um, 
And so I think that's, that's an, just an important thing that we have learned over the time is to, to think about how we're serving other people. That's beautiful. A question that came from a recent alumni. Um, she asks, if you could jump in a DeLorean, <laughs> you guys remember back, oh, to, yeah. the, back to the future, right? <laughs> the jump in a DeLorean, capacitor. go back, yes, with, with the flux capacitor that is working. <laughs> oh, um, we could just tie it to the clock. Yes, that's true. You could tie it to the clock <laughs> if you needed. We have a clock tower here at Dort <laughs> yes, University. That, um, if you could jump in a DeLorean, go yeah. back in time when you were just getting started, kind of oh. in worship or ministry, this is much broader than just yeah. songwriting and things. Yeah. What would you tell yourself? What might you tell your 21-year-old self or 22-year-old self if, if you could go back? And again, not destroy the space-time continuum, but actually have <laughs> a brief conversation. What, what advice or encouragement or, um, yeah, even concern or warning or, yeah, might you, might you tell yourself? In short, I would tell her to trust the Lord and enjoy the ride. <laughs> And then I'd also just give her a really big hug oh. and just let her know that the Lord loves her and is for her. And the same is true for all of us. I mean, the Lord is for you. He loves you. And he works things in ways that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, he does, but he's still working. I had a conversation about that last night. <laughs> and, um, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. Kenny, anything you'd tell younger Kenny? Don't be a bonehead. <laughs> um, I mean... It's 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 weird because I've been involved with music like since a teenager. It's like so, it's just thinking about all the different weird situations I was in, <laughs> different weird places I've played, and you know, like playing for the rock and roll church, yeah. and things like that. Um, I I think um, advice that would have helped me out earlier is just to be grounded. Um, I was just caught up in wanting to play music wherever I could. For a while, um, early on especially, and um, I didn't have strong foundations. Um, I think the other thing too is, you know, we've been playing music together for 18 years, 17, 17 years, and we thought that, like we would just go straight to Nashville and we would become studio musicians and all this other stuff. And the Lord said, no, you're going to go to Raleigh and you're going to spend 11 years doing other things. Um, and we needed those other things to form us into who we are now. And if we had gone straight at it, and this is not true of everybody, but it's true of us. If we'd gone straight at it, we would have been immature. And I don't think we would have actually helped people that much, maybe. So some of that. I mean, that's, ju- some of that journey was that's a so critical, like so world. critical for the formation yeah. of who you are now. Yeah, um, everything affects us. Yeah. You know, we're, we we don't wall. We like to think that we can compartmentalize things, but we can't. And um, I, I know I needed a lot more maturing before I tried to teach people things. You know, um, sit in front of you guys and talk about this stuff. I mean, if if twenty year old me were in here trying to talk about this stuff. I would not be helpful, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, so, yeah, I think just encouraging younger me to, to make sure I'm grounded on, you know, the things that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for, yeah, all you've shared, but also, yeah, the music and your unique, yeah, unique space in the body of Christ. It's, yeah, it's critical oh, for you. us to, to grow, but also be able to 
draw from that deep well that you've created with the Lord and also from the traditions that you're, you're drawn from. So thanks. Thanks so much for joining us on the Worship Theology Podcast, a space where we're bridging faith and ministry praxis. Special thanks to the Dort students involved with this podcast and also Kenny and Claire Hiller. Check out their music. <laughs>